0: Hello, and welcome to the Much Language Such Talk podcast. Future Kareen here. Today's episode was specifically recorded for the UN's International Day of Education, which celebrates the role of education in peace and human development. As academics, we think access to education is a human right, and we believe a well-educated population is one who can make informed decisions about their futures. Additionally, we have some exciting news about the podcast. We recently found out that we were accepted for a student experience grant from the University of Edinburgh. With the grant, we hope to increase the quality of the podcast and be able to reach an even wider audience. As an education podcast, like the UN, we believe everyone should have easy access to language research. Now, enjoy the episode! Welcome to Much Language Such Talk! Today you'll be hearing from me, Karine, and Austin, an MSC student in transformative teaching and learning at the University of Edinburgh. Before deciding on becoming a primary school teacher, Austin has coached football in the U.S., taught English in Japan, and worked as a pupil support assistant in Scotland. They have a background in developmental psychology and a master's in teaching English to speakers of other languages. Welcome, Austin. Hi. How are you?
1: Not bad, and yourself.
0: I'm all right. Thanks for joining us. Um, I said in your description that you are an MSc in transformative teaching and learning. Could you briefly explain what that course is?
1: Yeah. So the master's is a teaching training kind of course, but it's not just training, it's making sure that we're being super reflective on our practices, especially looking at things from social justice and sustainability.
0: What do you mean by super reflective? What does that mean exactly?
1: A lot of teacher training courses go into things that might just be about, you know, writing lesson plans and following the curriculum. And this is more looking at curriculum that's given by, you know, whatever governmental agencies or by the schools themselves. And how are we implementing that? But then also, how does that reflect and affect our teaching, how does that affect and reflect on our students and vice versa, learning from our students, looking at them and how they're affect, you know, affected by the things that we're doing.
0: Wow, that's that's really fantastic to have that kind of moment and introspection in your own uh, learning practices and teaching practices. That's really cool. So today we're very excited to be talking with Dr. Anya Byerly about education, language and social justice. Anya is a senior teaching fellow in language education at the Moray House School for Education and Sport at the University of Edinburgh. She has worked with a variety of the university's undergraduate and postgraduate programs, such as MSC TESOL and MSC Language Education, Initial Teacher Education, and BA Childhood Practice. Anya is a qualified early years and primary school teacher specializing in teaching English as a foreign language to young children. She has also worked with Edinburgh's English as an Additional Language Service, supporting bilingual Polish English speakers in Edinburgh schools and nurseries. Through this, she has gained experience in areas of inclusive, intercultural, and anti-racist education. Anya focuses on student teachers and school teachers developing understanding of various social justice issues, from social class, ethnicity, and race through linguistic and religious diversity. Her work as a teacher has led her to complete a PhD in education, investigating Scottish primary school teachers' perspectives on multicultural and anti-racist education. Anya's current research interests include children's ethnic, linguistic and cultural diversity and whether teachers incorporate these into their everyday practices, how an individuals and the school structural factors enable teacher autonomy, education policies and bilingualism, playful pedagogies, English as an additional language, early years and wider areas of social justice as well as critical literacy. Intercultural and Anti-Racist Education. Welcome, Anya. How are you? Hi, hello. Glad to be here. Oh, we're so happy to have you. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Are you ready to just jump right in? Let's do it. All right. So our first question, how did your interest in teaching come about? Well, fun, you should
2: ask. It actually started from language. Uh, It's true. I wanted to be a translator or perhaps an interpreter when, when I was in high school. And I thought, this is a great job maybe I can just spend all my days, you know, reading science fiction books and then translate it into into Polish or into English, whichever way. And I became a teacher instead. Um, (laughs) A little bit different. A little bit different. However, I got interested in a program, uh, um, a teacher education program, which qualified teachers also in being language teachers, specifically English as a foreign language teachers to young children. I thought this is is something to, to look at, to pursue. And after my first year at university, I thought this is the best choice ever. And I'm never wanting to be an, an interpreter or translate it again. <laughs> so, and um, yeah, I kind of, as, as, uh, as the studies progressed as my, my five-year master degree, which is what it was, progressed, I decided, you know what, it's a good idea to want to make a difference in people's lives and teaching is definitely an avenue to pursue that.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So... It was while you were going through all of these things that you were like, oh, teaching is a great way to bring language to people and like help people work on these kinds of things. I
2: think it actually grew on me with time. Yes, definitely. The more you (laughs) learn, the more you're excited about it, the more you're excited about being a teacher. Not to mention that studying pedagogy, uh, which included things like psychology and sociology and counseling studies and so on just really helped me just be who I am. And I thought, you know what, if anyone ever wants to become a parent in the future, they could they, they could do with studying pedagogy.
0: <laughs> yeah, not a bad idea. True. That's really great that you get to have all of these background courses looking at psychology and sociology. Those are really important things, I feel like, especially as an educator, you need to keep in mind while you're doing yeah, those. I think so. That's really cool. <laughs> So you mentioned that you were really interested in becoming a translator and then later becoming, you know, a language teacher. So what's your personal experience in learning and teaching languages?
2: I always remember enjoying learning languages. I know that my parents would say I was good at learning languages, but I never saw it that way. I just thought this is fun. I think I was lucky enough that my teachers or people I was working with made it fun. Uh, So I always enjoyed it. So I started, so I'm Polish. My first language is Polish. I grew up speaking Polish only. I started learning English when I was six, which is pretty standard and normal in a big city in Poland, uh, in, in, in Europe in general, I would say. I went to primary school where we had a choice of about four or five different languages and everybody studied at least two. So after English, I started learning Russian, I think in primary school, so when I was seven or eight, Uh, but I didn't quite like it, so I went with French a few years later, and I studied English and French throughout high school up until university, and interesting point as well, in order to become a teacher in Poland, you also have to continue with a foreign language at university, so I continued with just English at that point, and... Later on in my early 30s, I decided, you know what, actually the most useful language for me right now after English would be Spanish. So I started learning Spanish, um, which I really, really like, uh, but only did a few years of that and a PhD got in the way.
0: Um, (laughs) Ah, But I'll go
2: back. I'll go back. I'll go back and learn Spanish properly. And I did a little bit of a few months of Japanese recently as well which was really uh because i was planning a trip to japan i wanted to be able to communicate so i
0: use i use english and polish every day wow that is quite a range of languages though that's fantastic wow that's so cool to see that you've had such a like a long history with languages and you're continuing it now yeah it does suck when your phd and all your extra work gets in the way but yeah that's that's great (laughs) that you're having the chance to go back
1: so currently you're Teaching classes to help teachers battle issues on race, class, and other types of prejudice. Was there a specific event that made you want to help teachers learn how to support their students in these areas, or were you always interested in these dynamics within the classroom?
2: There is always this crucial event that happens in your life that that leads you to uh, to this path to take this path and not another. Uh, And for me, this was a specific experience, a teaching experience, actually. When I was on a, on a study exchange on Erasmus in Ireland, I spent a week in a little Catholic school in the south of Ireland with their youngest children. They called them infants, so they were five. And I was just amazed at how multicultural the classroom was. There were children from all over the world in the class alongside the Irish children. Lots of children spoke very different languages. Many of them did not speak English at that point. There were many, many Polish children uh, as well. And I I went into the classroom and I thought, wow, how do those teachers do it? How do those teachers manage? What do they do if they don't speak all the languages of the children that they have in the class? And so I wanted to find out how that's being done. And this ended up being my master's project, uh, where I ended up doing a comparative study between Polish primary schools and Irish primary schools on including multilingual children and the, the the ugly sides of not including multilingual children. So discrimination and prejudice.
1: Yeah, that's quite an intense environment you put into to have to, to see that and to be able to wrap your head around.
2: But you see, the, the interesting thing is that this was a normal environment for, for a lot of schools there in Ireland. And True. actually it is increasingly so a normal environment everywhere.
1: Yeah, so this diversity kind of makes it it a normal. So we have to tackle these sorts of issues head on. What are some of the most common issues teachers are facing when learning to tackle this prejudice in the classroom? And what advice would you give to support them with this?
2: So this is a big question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a big ask, (laughs) yeah.
1: Sorry.
2: Well, what I can say is that this is actually the reason why I went on after my master's to do a PhD, because I wanted to look deeper into the issues of ethnicity and race and language and religion. So all different markers of difference. And the types of prejudice and discrimination that children and young people face. So what are the most common issues that teachers face when they want to learn how to tackle prejudice in the classroom? Okay, so I'll give you some of the insights from that PhD that I've done. So there are, let's say, three different areas to look at where the most common um, issues that teachers face. The first one is the personal facts. Lots of teachers would tell us that Confidence, lack of confidence to tackle these issues is number one. And the reason for that is that most Scottish teachers, at least, are white, middle class, comfortable people. Don't get me wrong, anyone. But most of of Scottish teachers simply don't have personal experience of difference. Most Scottish teachers are monolingual. Most Scottish teachers have not lived abroad. Right? Most Scottish teachers are white, and therefore, they just don't know what it's like to be different. Yeah. And so that is the number one reason from what the teachers were saying for the lack of confidence. They just don't quite know. Another thing is of the fear of getting it wrong. I was just wondering, is
0: this the case even in um, more, I guess I don't like to use the word impoverished, but less well-to-do areas in Scotland as well, that the teachers still are also from middle-class areas?
2: In general terms, yes. However, teaching has always been, historically has always been the 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 profession uh, that enables social mobility mm-hmm. so uh, a lot of teachers are the first in their home let's say or in the family to go to university uh so yeah that would be a, a different uh position so then uh, you would say that perhaps the, the issues of social class are close to their hearts mm-hmm. but not necessarily still issues of skin color or ethnicity or language diversity yeah uh,
0: that's a good point Yeah.
2: So if I was to go back to the question, the fear of getting it wrong, for example, yeah, is to do with that that lack of confidence. And people are because of that, and they have the fear of what even language to use when talking about prejudice and discrimination. You know, are you are you able to use the word race? What does the word race mean? Uh, how would you describe difference? Uh, so the language around those issues is is something that the teachers uh, aren't just not sure of. The most common issues to do with prejudice in the classroom also are to do with kind of structural issues. So that the wider social societal issues, for example, you know, Islamophobia is real and a big, big, big and grown problem in Scottish and British society in general. So religion is very visible and religious difference is the, the most visible marker of, of difference and the most Common reason for for prejudice, um, unfortunately. Another thing is, uh, for example, English as additional language. Lots of uh, teachers are aware that there are, there will be children who do not speak English as their first language in class. However, they've got lots of misconceptions about it. I can talk about that later if you wish, a little <laughs> bit more. And what advice do I usually give teachers to support them with this? Well. <laughs> Can we, can we talk for about a day or two, <laughs> make, it, make it two yep. days out of it? Teachers may sometimes feel like they should choose a specialism that they should be good at. So, for example, be an advocate for disabled children or be an advocate for LGBTQ plus or learn more about this or that, where in fact, you know, they're not competing problems. They are intersecting problems, to put it a different way. They are all important, you know. What makes us who we are? Everything is important. There's no hierarchy of needs. But you cannot be an expert in everything. And this is also why teachers are unsure. So what I would say is tackle issues as they come along. Don't be afraid to take whatever children bring to your classroom and speak about that openly with them. And you will find the language to talk about those issues with the children. You might even actually ask the children to help you provide the language and work in tandem with them. So I would say start early, start with the primary school, start with the early primary school, or even better, start in nursery. Do not shy away from uncomfortable discussions, because children do not shy away from uncomfortable topics, because they're not uncomfortable, (laughs) they're just topics. (laughs) So they will naturally arise in the classroom. And so and the, the last thing I want to say here is that prejudice and tackling prejudice and discrimination is something that all teachers would do anyway, as part of being a teacher. Uh, because you just can't let it go you can't let it stay there yeah it's a a skill that children have to learn but it's also a standpoint and a value that us as teachers want to to give to to the children we work with so it's not necessarily just connected to ethnicity but to all aspects of who we are to, to gender to sexuality to strengths to anything at all really um so yeah it's just it's just a normal part of school life that's the advice i would give to teachers this normal part of
0: school life yeah that is wow i that it's a really good point to mention how it is important to not focus on one specific aspect of the children's lives because they're all going to be overlapping like they're they're not always going to have this one thing that might be happening though they they can have multiple things happening at the same time yeah that's
2: it yep we we are not square boxes
0: (laughs) not at all (laughs) yeah that's really good. So you mentioned a couple of um, instances uh, um, of prejudice and discrimination that might happen in schools. How has these areas shifted in recent years? Has it always been the same demographics that are receiving these types of prejudice or have they shifted lately within Scotland?
2: I would say there has been a shift and it actually would be interesting to talk to teachers of different generations and different ages in Scotland to see what their understanding is because... Say, you know, I moved to Scotland 14 years ago, uh, right at the beginning of mass migration into the UK from Eastern Europe. I am a very good example of that myself. So currently, the largest minority in Scotland is Polish people. Uh, we We have replaced very quickly the Commonwealth migrants from a good few decades ago. So... The, the biggest shift recently is uh, within the groups of visible versus invisible minorities. You know, when I walk down the street, I am not subject to strange looks. For example, uh, people don't clutch their bags when they see me and are not afraid of me because I'm white. I don't look different. I don't wear a hijab. i don't uh, I don't show myself as um, outwardly religious either, so that's also not a visible feature of me and my life. So the demography here has has changed. However, racism and prejudice are still here, and some even would say that they, they're growing. So within the context of Islamophobia, which I've mentioned before as well, we have definitely uh, heightened issues of skin color, religion, and visible minorities are not the only ones that are um, right now very prominent in Scotland. I would like to mention also that uh, the group of people who statistically have worst outcomes in terms of education, but also other aspects of life chances are actually Scottish travellers, a highly invisible group in a way. A lot of young people and young adults uh, from this group uh, who, for example, choose to stay on and educate formal education don't often admit that they are from a travelling background. And on the other hand, traveling children are often seen in education itself as those children who are most likely to drop out very early. And so are there's a lot of inequality and prejudice against that group as well. So, you know, in Scotland, we do have a bit of overt, but also a lot of covert racism, right? And in academic terms, we talk about racism and discrimination operating at three different levels. Not just that kind of visible interpersonal one between, you know, one person saying something bad about another person, but also at the structural level. So that means how uh, the society, society in general sees at a group and the institutional level. So how institutions like schools or universities or tax man or whoever else are organized that penalize you for being from minority background. So I would say that overall research suggests that more and more experiences of everyday racism are being documented and uh, are coming up to to the, to the light doesn't really necessarily mean that there's more of them happening but more and more um, of them can be seen by others in terms of academic
0: mm-hmm. yeah so it is kind of a, a thing of we're now noticing it.
1: So have you seen language discrimination in the classroom? Is it the same as racism or xenophobia, or is it is it something different? What is it? What does it mean?
2: Well, that's a good question. I'm not going to provide you with a definition of what language discrimination yep. is. That's that's not the point <laughs> here. Yes, so I haven't worked in various primary schools and nursery schools in Edinburgh, in in the city here. I would say just you know it's a city like many others, but it's a very multicultural city, very diverse city. Uh, with very diverse schools, especially primary schools, actually, you know what? Lots of teachers are doing a great job. Loads of teachers are doing really the best they can, providing also that uh, Scottish teachers don't really have much preparation for teaching multilingual children themselves. Yeah. So a lot of teachers have been supported over the years by the English as Additional Language Service in the city. Lots every every Edinburgh, every Scottish council would have or most, a lot of Scottish councils, let's say, uh, uh, have uh, such support. So it's often very limited. Um, but uh, the, the EAL specialists have been work, working around the different schools, going to different schools, in order to help teachers to adapt to the situation of working with multilingual children and giving them strategies to work with them by themselves. So teachers are doing a great job. I have to say, and teachers are not just trying to be able to help the children to access the curriculum. In other words, help them learn. That's obvious, right? But teachers understand that children who are bilingual and children who have parents from different countries perhaps bring more to the classroom than just the language. So I would say what you would call language discrimination, perhaps would be a moment where a teacher is treating bilingual or multilingual child as a problem. Yeah. and not as a resource if you treat a multilingual child as a resource you're doing a great job because then you you actually have another teacher in the classroom yeah there you go um so uh, i've seen for example a class where the teacher was teaching french and she had a multilingual child who also had french and so that that child was often the teacher <laughs> <laughs> obviously in a very small part only uh helping here and there with pronunciation or words or or something like that but there we go you should definitely use that as an as an opportunity so please do not treat bilingual children as a as a problem it's not just a lack of english that is um defining them unfortunately though there are still teachers like that uh, again probably mostly because they just don't know any different and they haven't had enough education yet about bilingualism there are unfortunately also parents just like teachers who think that bilingualism is a problem, that it will slow down your rate of learning English or that it will bring down your result. Yeah, so we we still have to battle with that. But is it the same as racism or xenophobia? It can be combined. So it's about attitudes, people's attitudes to other people, people who are different, whether they're five years old, 15 or 55. It doesn't matter. If If you don't like difference, then you will be prejudiced against that person. Another thing to mention, I guess, here is that, unfortunately, within the UK and Scotland, different languages have different status. You know, we've got the languages, the, the ones that are taught as modern languages, for example, in Scottish high schools are the, the languages that have high status. The ones that are the languages of the future work and markets and economy have better standing than, say, Polish or Romanian or any language you can think of that are just here because they're represented. Unfortunately, some teachers still think that English should be the only language that's allowed in the classroom. However, I would say from my experience, that is thankfully rare these days.
0: That is great to hear. That makes me very happy. Me too.
2: So, overall, children with uh, bilingual children, I think, they're really helping each other. You know, the children are helping each other, and teachers are helping all the children in the class to to achieve. If you want to talk about learning languages in high schools, that's a difference.
0: It's amazing to see the difference between it, because when you look at Scotland's one plus two program that they've been trying to implement, one of the factions of this is to bring the community languages into the schools to give the students the opportunity to do that. But as you were saying, because of the status of especially European languages, which Spanish, what is it, Spanish, French, German, Italian are the big ones that are taught. Yeah and 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 Chinese, yeah. and chinese yes sorry and mandarin but what are the chances when you have you know a community where they speak like punjabi or if they speak urdu or if i don't you have another chinese community where they speak cantonese instead that you're going to have trained qualified teachers to do that and i think that's the issue that they're falling into at the moment because all the teachers have been trained to learn these specific languages yeah. so it's not the qualification that's there yet. It's interesting to see how that's going to change. It's a, I think the policy itself is really great. in wanting to bring all of these languages to kids, I, I understand that, of course, it takes time to, you know, change from one policy, from one system to another. <laughs> Speaking of uh, languages in school, what are some of the most, you, you mentioned a couple of these, but what are some of the most common misconceptions about bilingual students in the classroom? What has research said about these misconceptions?
2: I think like I said before the the, the main misconception about bilingual students is that they are lacking something that deficit model of thinking as we call it in academia that that bilingualism is sometimes somehow hindering <laughs> their learning what has research said about this no it's not true you're lying <laughs> not true it is a resource uh, not a, a lack not a problem i think on a, on another level a common misconception about bilingual students is that their language or their languages is the, the the largest part of their identity. And it doesn't have to be that way at all. No, oftentimes children who have been born in Scotland, who happen to come from a family where one or both parents are not Scottish, they, they feel Scottish. They are Scottish. There's no question about it. They're Scottish and perhaps also something else. <laughs> So that language and that the uh, the culture aspect of who they are as well, yeah they're important, but they're not the most defined the defining factors of, of who they are as children. Maybe they are just a child, maybe they just want to be known as you know, Mary <laughs> age six <laughs> from Edinburgh. That's it. That's enough yeah. for now. Another misconception that still sometimes reigns is that if you have a bilingual child then their parents or the parents must not speak good English. Yeah. Mm. Why Why would that be? I don't understand. Really. Yeah, sometimes it happens. Of course, people move. People still move. It's not like everyone who lives in Edinburgh has lived here for you know the last decade or so. But it doesn't mean that they don't speak English at all.
0: That's a really good point about mentioning how the languages aren't their full identity. My parents both immigrated to the States at different times. My father came to the States in the 70s. My mother showed up in the 80s. My dad's from Israel. My mom's from Finland. I consider myself to be American. And no one in America would take that away from me. And I think it's because America's, you know, history of well, immigration, as I will uh, politely call it right now, which makes it that no one really fights me against it. Yet I can see how I have actually seen exactly examples of like first generation kids in Scotland being like, I'm Scottish. And they're like, but aren't you Chinese? And they're like, I was born and raised here, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.
2: And actually, this is a this is a common thing that is being brought up in research for second, third, and even fourth generation, visibly different Scottish. Unfortunately, you have Scottish young people, children, and young people who are still being asked where they're from if you know their their grandparents came from India, uh, and that should not be that way. It's yeah. Not fair. It's absolutely not fair it's hard
0: to carry this burden so long mm-hmm. because of your skin color. Exactly. Yeah. To pivot a little bit, you came to the University of Edinburgh to study for your PhD, is that correct? Yes. So while you were studying, is that how you found out about building rules and matters? How did you hear about the organization? How did you get first get involved?
2: That's a really good question. I don't remember. I think. It's just, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. I, I must have just come across it uh, one day and I thought, okay, this is perfectly interesting. Let's have a look. <laughs>
0: so do you think it's kind of a moment of like language enthusiasts all just kind of gravitated towards each other that's like we had some kind of homing beacon where we're like you yes we have similar opinions on this and we want to talk about it so let's get together another
2: thing is that PhD students are in this phenomenal position of uh being encouraged to look around and and see what's available and find discussion groups and fora and mingle with other students and stuff and so pretty sure that this is what happened i just i just went to all kinds of seminars and talks and discussions and wanted to find out and learn as much as possible so bilingualism matters would have been one of those platforms because bilingualism matters organizes yearly big conference and all kinds of regular events that are definitely of interest so yeah
0: that's so cool to hear how you kind of like stumbled into it in a way
2: one other thing i do remember it comes to my mind just now uh one of the schools i worked in as a bilingual support assistant with the uh, english traditional language uh actually antonella came one day for a talk oh man so i i the first time i met antonella was at a parents evening or it was a- about the time of parents evening that they scheduled her talk to be uh, for the parents of multilingual children in that school so uh, that's yeah i remember that
0: that's amazing. We've kind of just been like on the sidelines uh, with you for a while. Just like, hey, how you doing? Until you merged and came uh, to be part of the organization as well. That's,
2: that's great. It just kind of shows that mm-hmm. Bolognese Matters has been here for a while, you know, and it's very respected uh, amongst teachers and among pet teachers, schools. And so, um,
0: yeah, BM. Yay. Oh, That's so great to hear. Yeah, so you mentioned that teachers and um, headteachers know about bilingualism matters. What resources would you recommend uh, for teachers to use to further their own practice and educate themselves on how to deal with classroom discrimination, specifically for languages and bilingual children?
2: Well, I wish there was a booklet that could give you all answers and that you could read it in half an hour and know from Mm -hmm. now on how to deal with bilingualism, discrimination, (laughs) everything. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist. It's
0: like, holy ground. Oh
2: yeah, Uh, it's like I remember uh, I taught a class on anti-racism once with my uh, undergraduate student teachers, and uh, I got some feedback after the two-hour workshop on racism that they, some someone, was disappointed that they didn't learn anything about how to how to how to disrupt racism because you know, like I could tell them in two hours how to do everything. It's such an easy thing (laughs) to do. But oh, on a more serious note, bilingualism uh, matters has a range of resources, but I think that the main, the most important resource is the ability to talk to other people and to discuss and to learn. So not necessarily look for quick fixes because they don't really exist, but to find where to look for more information. Yeah, to find more resources on specific things that you want to uh, ask about, but To find out how to make them work in your own context.
0: Yeah, that's something I really love about it is that we've got this great like pool of resources from different places and that the organization being international in the way that it is. If one of us in like the Edinburgh branch, if we don't know something, we can go to someone else who is possibly doing research in this area and ask them for their support and what they've seen so far.
2: I mean, also because teachers, you know, what teachers do when they don't know something, they ask their friends, they ask their colleagues, don't go and yeah. look for academic journal articles about this is that topic. Yeah. No, you ask your fellow teachers. And so this is it. Bilingualism Matters is made up of a lot of teachers, a lot of educators who work in various fields in various countries. And we can point to one another and to one another's work. So I particularly like an effort that is now within BM to actually put some of the academic work plain language i think that's a very good initiative and i think that's something that uh yeah should be done more i would be keen to help because it's so difficult actually for us academics speak in normal plain speak
0: it is so hard that
2: i would like to learn to do that better myself so yeah this is this is a, a a winner for me
0: hmm We're going to put on every single workshop in two hours, you'll learn how to never use <laughs> academic jargon again. <laughs> oh my God, if only, that would be amazing. It's so great that you are, uh, you're very passionate about Bilingualism Matters and the work that we do. And with this, you are now currently the Program Director for Teacher Education with Bilingualism Matters. While the pandemic has put many projects on hold, you've also, if it's okay for me to mention, uh, have been on maternity leave for the last year. What were or what are your goals with this position?
2: I've got a lot of goals, a lot of ideas in my head and not enough time. It's never enough time. Okay. Well, actually, they're they're the same. They have been the same for a while, my, my goals. Teacher education does not have enough education about bilingualism and about languages and about linguistic diversity and culture diversity and all kinds of ethnicity and race and everything that comes with it, really. So it, I unfortunately I I am not the education minister for Scotland. I cannot make sweeping changes. However, I can reach individual teachers and also student teachers. I think actually I always choose student teachers because I think they have, like you, Austin. Yeah. You you are the prime material for me to be able to convince or to at least try to inform you so that you convince yourself that these issues are worth delving in deeper. And that you are currently, you're not yet teaching, so you have time on your hands to research. That's part of your degree as well. And the role of your degree is to learn and research, and to investigate and yeah. find out. And so this is the time to find out both the theory and a bit about the practice of how to deal with um, discrimination, racism, and things like language discrimination as well. In actual classrooms with real people, real children. For example, if they're six or sixteen, yeah. <laughs> would have to do it differently, right? Um, yeah. Or in nursery, there's quite a lot of research in in Scotland, even originated from Edinburgh, on uh, how children learn discrimination in in the very early, before they actually start speaking. Well, they already learn that discrimination. So we know that you know if children learn that kind of attitude and behavior, then us teachers, we have to help them unlearn, have to make it visible and explicit and talk about. So my goals for as a program director of teacher education, bilingualism matters are to um, uh, introduce more opportunities for both student teachers and in-service teachers to discuss those issues, to to work on specific examples of work they could be doing as part of their normal daily work to uh, teach anti-discrimination, anti-racism, and to look at the value of languages and diversity, in lots of different ways of understanding that
0: word. That sounds fantastic! I'm really excited for you to come back to work and to do all of these things. That's going to be great. Thanks.
1: Okay. So, I guess more on a on a more practical note, for at least I'm very interested in this. Um, what what would your ideal classroom look like? Uh, you know, in terms of how languages are approached and used.
2: I love this question. That's a perfect question. Actually, when I was interviewing my, my interviews for my PhD, my last question was also about the ideal world scenario for their life. I think ideal <laughs> world scenarios can tell you a lot about, yeah, what what, what could be possible because why not? Let's dream big. Um yeah. in terms of how languages are approached. So let me let's start from actually turn it around in its head about how languages are taught. In my ideal classroom, languages would be taught by competent, educated language teachers. First and foremost, I don't think you can teach a language just because you speak it. Yes. To rephrase it, research suggests that you cannot <laughs> just teach a language because you speak it. You have to know how to teach that language. So, in in this country right yeah. now, unfortunately, there is no preparation. There is very little preparation. For teachers in primary schools specifically, there is very little next to no preparation included within teacher education degrees for teachers to feel like they are competent in teaching the languages they are tasked to teach. In secondary schools, it's an even more complicated picture and it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. And my ideal school would definitely have choice of languages to learn. And the ability to change the language you want to learn whenever. Yeah. You don't have to stick with Spanish for six years if you don't like it after first year. Why would you do that? Yeah. You know, it's making the language a chore. It's not supposed to be a, a subject that's a chore that you then achieve poorly and you hate it and then you have to take an exam at the end of school because you're like oh I hate languages. <laughs> um, it's supposed to be fun. If it's fun, it's more likely to be successful. Um, yeah. Another thing is, my ideal school would be resourceful in terms of who to employ to teach languages and not rely on the fallacy that you have to employ native speakers of that language to teach it well. There's a whole bunch of research about that, about native speakerism, and not just about English, but any language. Um, So the ideal classroom in terms of learning languages would have enough time devoted to it, uh, not one hour a week. And within the time comes also, you know, actual graded difficulty and interest and real life use of the languages and not textbooks all the time and, you know, but real life use uh, of languages. So making it fun, making it fun. Like what we did, Corinne, with uh, the Harry Potter reading, for example, ah, for different languages. That was I love so that. much fun. I mm-hmm. loved it too. I think it's for all languages, all, all ages. But so not specifically about how languages are taught, but how languages are approached in classrooms. My idea classroom would just allow people to experiment. And if they know any language, whether they are bilingual, multilingual, or just learned languages, let them use them. Just use them. So I've I've seen classroom teachers in primaries where they had children who had English as an additional language, where children didn't have much English yet. And they allowed the children to complete tasks, for example, in English literacy, in their first language. Why not? Why not? A child can perfectly write a poem, but just not in English yet.
0: That is great. So let them
2: write it in the other language. Let them use the languages. See them as a reason. And for Scotland, where, you know, one of the countries where English is the first language, let's just demystify this idea that languages are difficult to learn. They're not. They're not. They're very difficult, but if you only do one hour a week, you know, you're, you're doing language awareness, not language teaching.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a good point about letting the kids. I really like that. Let the kids do the tasks in the language that they're confident in. I think, of course, it's important for them to learn the language of the environment. Definitely. But like when I was a kid, I was in nursery school and I came home from school one day with a note pinned to me. I love telling the story um, that literally just said, please teach Korean English. She bit someone today and so at, i was yeah exactly i'm like not even like two years old it's an age kid bite people it happens yeah. but my mother only spoke to me in finnish and so i only spoke finnish at this age i mean what does a two-year-old really say but i really didn't use english even though this was the language of the environment because i spent all my time with my mom and so once i got to school i didn't really have the words for english yet and like and it, it's like to this day that bothers me so much my mom she was it was the early 90s we didn't have all of this resources yeah um to be able to say anything so she was just like the teacher's right if I don't teach her English and I only speak Finnish then she'll never learn English and unfortunately this is what <laughs> happened which is mind-boggling because now my Finnish skills are that of a two-year-old <laughs> um but yeah who knows what that kid did to deserve that bite but <laughs> oh.
2: but, but Austin wouldn't you also agree that as a teacher, you, it's in your interest to find out who you're working with.
1: No, absolutely. Who your
2: fa- who the families are, right? but a little bit about the yeah. family and about the kids themselves. Yeah. So.
1: No, absolutely. Because what we're learning about right now is about the the you know that's not just the child that you see in the classroom. It's everything that they bring from home and their own background experience. It's not just you know although they might identify as this you know particular kid in the classroom. They have a whole wealth of experiences coming from there. And if you can tap into those, get them engaged, because there's a lot of stuff that goes into how engaged the kids are, how motivated they are. And if they're not being, you know, respected or understood, then it becomes tricky for them to be able to engage with the teachers, be able to engage with their peers. And it's just it's 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 a. it's a tricky situation.
0: Oh my God! <laughs> children are people. Who would have thought? Yeah,
1: <laughs> novel concept. I know.
0: There's there's two interesting
2: things that just came to my mind. One is uh, another real life example of something amazing that I've seen in, in the primary school. Uh, you know, there's you might know that various language communities in many cities have what they call complementary schools or Saturday schools. Those so schools, you know, community led groups usually that teach children of that language or that ethnicity, uh, a little bit about the country, the language, the geography, the history, and so on. So it's like a very mini school on Saturday mornings, usually. Um, So in one primary school in Edinburgh, I saw uh, that a girl who attended uh, a Polish Saturday school came one day with show a prize that she won for a star speller, a contest across the whole scotland so she was the winner of this age group spelling competition in polish that's amazing and you know how hard it is to write in the language that you don't use every day it's not about Mm -hmm. speaking the writing is hard and she was the winner of the orthography you know so really difficult task really really amazing accomplishment and what i liked about it the most is that it wasn't just that she brought it to school because she wanted to um share it but in that school it was part of normal practice that teachers knew and asked the children what they were doing outside of school especially if it was bilingual children and children of different cultures and who were uh, who had access and regularly did activities that majority children would not do so if children if teachers are aware of your children attending a saturday school they can actually find out what they're doing there and take that forward
0: that's amazing so
2: that, that's a fun anecdote.
0: Also, well done to her for that Yay. getting that award. Well yeah. done.
1: <laughs> um, so do you have any examples of eliminating language discrimination from the classroom that you've, that you've come across over the years?
2: Like I said, I think overall, a lot of teachers are doing a really great job. And so they're, they're, there's quite a lot to talk about. But actually, something that comes to mind is uh, a personal experience from this week. If you don't mind, from a nursery. Of course, please. Uh, I am yeah. just enrolling my ten-month-old son into nursery uh, for the first time, and uh, you know, all staff are native English speakers. They don't have any bilingual staff members, from what I can see. However, they do have bilingual children, and so it's all about attitude. It's all about attitude for in this instance, institutional attitude. And structure attitudes that filters down to individuals so when when you're first rolling a child into nursery it's just like when you're neural child oh you actually let the environment know let them know a little bit about the child or you know schools ask parents to fill in forms to say a little bit about their child they do and and so the nurseries, and so the the key worker i was talking to um uh, said that since they knew they knew that um, my son is growing up bilingual said that I can they they I'm more than welcome to uh provide them with some key phrases in polish that the child is already used to because you know being 10 months old he definitely can't speak it but he can already understand it and so this was something that was discussed on the first first time we met um and I was given uh, a little cheat sheet which I think is very useful for that all monolingual staff to have with the same phrases that they can use like hungry drink tired you <laughs> know important things for that's so for smart. little children um and a few spaces where you can write in your own words so things for example like come hot in polish and so on which he knows by now you know he knows very well and so the staff showed me on the second day of, of dropping him off for a settling in session <laughs> that they are already using some of those words when taking the baby out of the buggy. I mean, how simple is that? Super simple. Yeah. Oh my god. And it That's only amazing. requires five five thing. minutes of that person's time to try to put yeah. in their head something. Obviously, they're not going to learn every single language that there is, but they're only working with a group of twelve children for the next year, and I think you know within that they probably have one or two bilingual children. You can make an effort. And so, yeah, individuals can make such a difference if they have the right attitude supported by the organization they work in. And so that's why I say I see a lot of schools doing a lot of a, a good job, a lot of individual teachers doing a good job. But let's not forget they have to have the support of the organization behind them, including in the policies. The head teachers are hugely important and they really steer what's happening in schools. But the head teachers also as you know, Austin students are bound to curricula and policies. And the policies, like we talked about earlier, Karine, about the 1.2 <laughs> approach to language yep. learning in Scotland, they are good in in theory, right? For example, yes. talking about community yep. languages being included, but in practice, there is no exam that school leavers in Scotland can take in high school, for example, for community languages. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, but when, when there's a will, there's a way. And there are schools in various cities known for their attitude to language learning and to countering discrimination. There are there, there, there are primary schools in Edinburgh, for example, who actually offer children Polish after class.
1: Oh, wow. That's awesome.
2: Because they know that there's so many children who are Polish language speakers that they could actually learn it more, you know, not just the speaking part, the, the writing and the orthography and so on
0: as well. So it's possible that was so heartwarming oh. honestly to yeah. hear that they're doing <laughs> that it's such <laughs> Just, a small thing yeah. Yeah. like it doesn't seem like a lot it, it really isn't but it is so crucial for also like helping you know people feel a part of yeah. their community and also show that yeah. the teachers care it's, it's
2: recognition and that's that's one of the main elements of anti-racism too and you know to put it in yeah. other words one of the one of the main ways of being discriminatory against others is by misrecognizing people. Mis-rec- this, is discrimination.
0: No. Yeah. So we're talking about children and students and classes, and we've been around children. Austin and I have both taught in primary schools. um We've seen children generally in the world. <laughs> you have
2: also been children once. Imagine that. What? This
0: is true. Oh my
2: God. That's I thought amazing. I came out
0: <laughs> fully formed. <laughs> yeah. And we've all seen that children are un- unpredictable, they're very expressive, they're very unfiltered. And you first specialize in working with children. Do you agree with this statement or do you have any relatable stories about working so with children? So, this is funny.
2: You say children are unpredictable, expressive, and unfiltered. And it sounds like a bad thing. It kind of <laughs> sounds like these. This you, you, Korean adults who forgot that you're a child once. You say you're unfiltered, <laughs> you're unpredictable. Or actually <laughs> it's actually something i love about kids. there we go so it's is,
1: why i'm going into teaching
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: but it's funny how you can take you know the same word and put a different spin into it Yeah. and mm-hmm. different people do that differently exactly some people think that children are you know they should be seen and not heard right there are many adults they should learn how to behave and they should become adults that mm. learn how that, that know how to behave and some and other people would say, okay, children are unfiltered and expressive and unpredictable, and that's the best thing about them because they are free. They're not afraid. Yes. Children are amazing. Children are really open and they are really honest. Now, children also want to fit in, and that can be a problem, but they are more accepting than adults, and they're often less surprised by things than we are, that uh, us adults are. So uh, I can only depraise the children, really. <laughs> um I you know what I would say? I'm not gonna come up with a specific anecdote anymore as children are great, but what I would say is that I would challenge you and the listener, I would challenge you, if you have access to any group of small children, even take two two or three small children and best nursery children or early primary school children, interview them about something really important. A really important topic mm-hmm. like love or friendship or why do people work? Or something like that. And you'll you'll be amazed. Your mind will be blown by the answers that they come up with. It's just just amazing. I've done I've done something like that for the first time early on in my, my first degree. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a, a preschool group of children and we were laughing our head off us us student student teachers because they were just amazing. So children know a lot more than we think and children are so quick at learning from us. Unfortunately, like we said earlier, they also learn about the prejudice. They learn the wrong attitude. Mm-hmm. However, they are very good to work with and to challenge these attitudes. You know, a lot of teachers uh, who I worked with on anti-racist Workshop said, how do you work with children whose parents, you know, they bring the attitudes to, from home to school. So how do you do that? You can't teach the parents, can you? Well, well what should we do? Should we just give up then? And say, yeah, this seven-year-old has the right to be racist for the rest of their life. <laughs> <laughs> no. I think as teachers, we have the we have the conviction that children are able to learn, and they are able uh, to think rationally, and they are able also to have empathy.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. So
2: there's there's no prescription here. Every teacher will actually know what to do in their own way. Don't be afraid.
0: It was I think it was Carl Sagan who was talking someone had asked him what's his favorite audience to work with and he said that he loved to work with young children because adults either don't ask questions or they ask you the exact same question over and over again while kids will come up with these novel questions of like why are clouds shaped like that why do we have stars like all of Why
1: this- does a watermelon why is a watermelon hard on the outside but soft on the inside.
0: (laughs) This is an example. Actually, our friends got from a nursery school student when we were working in Japan and she had just asked them, does anyone have any questions, any questions (laughs) at all? And then they asked that question and she was just like, that is a great question. (laughs) I'll have to come back to you. (laughs) Yeah. I think a better way to put this is that they're, they're super creative and they're open to new experiences and they're going to tell you what they're thinking, and which is great, honestly. But you
2: see, children, children believe that everything is possible, and I think yeah. that's the best thing about them, because you really can carry on that attitude. Yeah, everything is possible. Yeah. Do you want to eliminate discrimination? Yes, it's possible. If we can do it in our class, then why can the whole school not do it? And then why can the whole country not do it? Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. If you believe in it, everything
0: is possible. Exactly moving back from the students to the teachers, if you could recommend one book or a movie or maybe one of each um, to all trainee teachers, what would it be?
2: Because oh, we have so much time to read. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the the book of the year for me last year is called Factfulness. Mm-hmm. by. It's written by Hans Ola and Anna Rosling. Hans Rosling was a professor of public health from Sweden. He died a year or two ago unfortunately uh ola is his son and anna is his daughter-in-law and they've been working together for quite a few years now to come up with a very accessible and entertaining way of showing statistics to people and mm. using numbers and statistics to convince people that actually fact you know what are quite useful to know and they can change attitudes so Factfulness by Hans Grossling is a book that tries to dispel some of the main myths around the world, like, for example, you know, it's all doom and gloom, there's a lot of war, natural disasters, and da 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 It's really well written, it uses that, and up-to-dates that, and it shows them in a graphic, easy, easily accessible way. And it shows us as individuals uh, strategies and very simple strategies uh, of how we can change the way that we think for the better. So uh, I think that teachers and everyone else actually should have a look at that book and read it.
0: That sounds so cool. Wow. Easy stats. That doesn't yeah, exist.
2: Exactly. That's I also I'm, I'm not a quantitative person at all. I, I didn't even do statistics. So for me, it's like magic, but <laughs> I understood factfulness. fine.
1: fine. I'll make sure to send it to all my course
2: mates.
1: (laughs) Definitely going to pick that up. Just going to start buying it for everyone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I actually did that for my sister. Yeah. There we go. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's all the questions we have. Thank you so much for speaking with us and answering our questions in such a great and insightful way. And it's also very clear from the way that you speak about your work, how enthusiastic you are. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This was a pleasure. This was a pleasure for us as well. And Austin, thank you so much for someone who is training as well. I can imagine this was quite insightful for you.
1: No, absolutely. Very reflective as per our earlier conversation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Always reflecting. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for joining us while we talked about language education and inclusion with Anya. We hope you've been inspired to think about your everyday experiences with those around you and in education. If you're interested in learning more about Anya and her work, you can find the link to her university page in the episode description. Tune in next time to keep learning about how language shapes us and the environment around us. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and... Sayonara!
1: Au revoir!